Well, good morning again, Door Creek. How are you? Good. Well, I have the joy of introducing our guest speaker this morning. He is Mike Bullmore. He's going to be here this afternoon for the forum. And uh, he was here last night. He's here this morning, uh, ending our storyline series. And so if you're relatively new to Door Creek, we've been 13 months or something like that in the storyline series. And so it's coming to a close today. It's the end. We've made it. And so not only is, is Mike our guest preacher this morning, but he's a good friend of mine and was my pastor for over 10 years as I was at Crossway Community Church uh, attending and serving on worship teams and just figuring out my own call to pastoral ministry. And so the good, the bad, and the ugly was formed sitting under this man. No, I'm just kidding. All the good, all the good. And so he's had a big impact on mine and Nikki's life as we have just sought out a call to pastoral ministry and just sat under his faithful biblical teaching week in and week out. And so I would love for you to join me in just warmly welcoming him to Door Creek this morning. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Well, it is a privilege for me to be here uh, this weekend at Door Creek with you, although I was just a little unsettled by the comment on the video a moment ago that I would answer all of your questions or any remaining questions about Revelation. So just lower the expectations a little bit, uh, but we'd love to have you come this afternoon uh, for that forum. Um, it's been just a particular joy for me to be able to, to spend some time. I'm looking forward to having lunch with Ben and Nikki, but to see um, Ben in his element and to see him using his gifts of leadership and his love for God through music um, to serve you has been a particular joy. Um, I love what I've been asked to do, and that is to stand here and open God's word. I get to stand behind God's word and do my best to present it to you. Um, I understand my responsibility this morning is to kind of help wrap up this series that you've been in for several months now, and so to do that, I would like to ask you to turn with me to the very last chapters of the Bible. Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. The final chapters, not just of the book of Revelation, but of the entire biblical trajectory. Revelation 21 and 22. Now, as you probably know, the book of Revelation is a book of visions. Right from the beginning... We see that the Apostle John is instructed, write down what you see. And God proceeds to show him vision after vision all the way through this book. In fact, John repeatedly uses this little phrase, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw all through this revelation which God gave him. And here at the very end, in Revelation 21 and 22, God gives John one last vision, this great and glorious vision of the church now finally and fully redeemed. It's a vision of God's people gathered now all together and home at last. Now, there is a part of me that just wants to read through these verses, let them have their effect, and then go sit down. But I've been called to teach, and so I'm going to do my best, but... I'm still going to read this slowly and carefully, and I ask you to pay very close attention. Everything that is here, everything, is designed to have an impact on you, and so let your, let your biblically informed imagination be very active as I read Revelation 21, 
starting at verse 1 and going through chapter 22, verse 5. You follow along. This is God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he, was, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give him, give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the, city of the, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. 
They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Father, thank you for this book that you've given to us. Thank you that you've not left us just adrift on a sea of uncertainty. You've spoken to us. And yes, Father, we recognize that the secret things belong to God. But that which has been revealed belongs to us and to our children. And so we pray, God, use your word. Use it to put faith in our hearts. Use it to encourage our hope this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin this morning by asking you a question. It's a fairly simple question, nothing terribly profound or philosophical, here it is. What are you looking forward to? Just think about that a moment. What what are some of the things that you're actually looking forward to right now? That's a question that I ask myself, not infrequently, and occasionally I'll ask others around me that question. I I think it's a great question to get a sense for, for where someone's really at. So, what are you looking forward to? And while we're at it, let's just think for a moment, what does it actually mean to look forward to something? Well, you, when you look forward to something, you, you think about it. It occupies your thoughts. But more than that, there's a desire. There's a longing for that thing to come. And even more than that, there is typically some kind of getting yourself ready for it emotionally, psychologically, orienting your heart and your mind toward that thing. Well, here's the thing this morning. I believe God wants his people actively looking forward to what he describes for us here in Revelation 21 and 22. I believe that's why he had John write this in a book, so that his people could have this in their mind and in their hearts to look forward to this. I mean, really, it's pretty clear that God wants those who are his to look forward to this future with great longing and with great hope. Do you remember that company that that started the whole, you know, stand-up paddleboard craze several years ago? It was called YOLO, Y-O-L-O, which stands for, do you know this? You only live once, which, I mean, that kind of thing just drives me crazy. You only live once. It's a really short life, so, you know, make sure to go paddleboarding. (laughs) Make sure to climb some mountain. Make sure to do this or that. I mean, I've actually suggested to my, sh- to my children that we should, we should start up an alternative paddleboard company and name it YOLT, 
not Y-O-L-O, but Y-A-L-T, which stands for you actually live twice. One short life, maybe 70 or 80 years, and then a really long life that lasts for eternity. And God says here to his people, keep that eternity in your mind. Look forward to that. God is saying to us, here's what's coming. Here's what you, as my people, can and should look forward to. Here's where it's all heading. So this morning, I I just want to name and then describe five things that I see here in this vision of what God has for his people. Five things that God is setting before us for us to see so that we will look forward to them. I've got two F's, one C, a D, and another F, which sounds like a horrible report card, right? But for God's people, it's all good. In fact, it's amazing, wonderful news. So first, number one, I see fulfillment here. We should be eagerly looking forward to, God wants us to eagerly look forward to the fulfillment of all that has been promised. We see this in some very specific ways in Revelation 21 and 22, but look with me again, especially at those opening verses. Then I saw heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. Verse 4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eye. Verse 5, behold, I am making all things new. Things got off to a wonderful start back in the beginning. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything was, it was beautiful. It was rivers and trees and mountains and all sorts of living things on the earth and in the sea and in the air, and then God made man. He made a man and a woman, and he put them there on the earth with the heavens stretched out over them, and he said to them, look, look, this is for you. I made this for you, and things were very good. But then, as we know, something terrible happened. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and in response, to show the magnitude of that rebellion, God subjected all of creation to futility, in which it remains. But God has promised some things. From the time that the first heaven and the first earth were put under his curse, he has promised a new heaven and a new earth. Listen to how he said it through the prophet Isaiah. This is many centuries ago, but just listen to what Isaiah says. This is chapter 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And in the end, there will be a whole new beginning. God will make a new heaven and a new earth. I mean, we need to see the obvious and intentional kind of parallel between Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and Revelation 21-1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So he's promised 
a new heaven and a new earth. He's promised a new Jerusalem. He's promised to dwell among his people. He's promised to remove all weeping and all distressed. And he's promised to present his people to himself as a lovely, spotless bride. And all of those things come to fulfillment here in this time described in Revelation 21. And ultimately, God wants us to look forward to his promise to make everything new. That's what he says in verse 5, behold, I am making all things new. Notice he doesn't say, I'm making all new things. He says, I'm making all things new. There will be this fulfillment. So heaven, this future that we all look forward to, is not some entirely different reality, some kind of, you know, otherworldly or ethereal floating kind of foreign existence. Listen to this. I read this on a Starbucks car- cup of all places. Uh, several years ago, for a while, Starbucks was, was doing this thing that they called As I See It, where people could kind of voice their opinion about some subject, and Starbucks would put it on their cups. And this one is from a guy named Joel Stein, who was a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Here's what he said. Heaven is totally overrated. It sounds boring to me. Clouds, listening to people play the harp. It should be somewhere you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. Maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in line in the 17th century, but heaven has to step it up a bit. They're basically getting by because they only have to be better than hell. You know how sometimes you hear people say, I I don't particularly want to spend forever sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. Well, you know what? I don't either. And who ever said you would? I mean, what a goofy idea of heaven. And I don't mean to be unkind, but somebody needs to tell Mr. Stein to read his Bible. Because when you read Revelation 21 and 22, you get a very different picture. It's a new heaven and a new earth, like the old one, only made completely new, just as God promised. All that we can see, all that we experience now, even at its best, it won't hold a candle to what's coming. He will make everything new. But let's not miss this. This description throughout this chapter is not just newness, you know, like some marketing strategy, new and improved. It's fulfillment. Every major strand of biblical promise is brought to fulfillment here. Covenant fulfilled. Atonement fulfilled. Temple fulfilled, kingdom fulfilled, marriage fulfilled, heaven and earth fulfilled. God is bringing everything to the complete and perfect fulfillment that he always intended. Oh, how we should look forward to this. And God wants us to look forward to this. That's why it's here. Second, number two, there is freedom. We should eagerly look forward to, God wants us to eagerly look forward to freedom from sin and from the curse and all of their effects. Listen to how Paul says this with such pathos. You probably recognize these words. This is from Romans chapter 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption, the freedom that God has promised. Listen, none of us has ever experienced the true freedom that God intended us to live in. We've never experienced it. We live under the curse, clouded by sin, the greatest frustration. Just think about this for a second. The greatest frustration for Christians living in this world is not that everything in this world is broken, as frustrating as that is. The greatest frustration is that we still sin. We carry sin with us. We want to be holy, right? But we fall short every day. We, we want to be patient and kind with people around us, but we still say unkind and hurtful things. We want to worship God with all of our hearts, but we so often feel cold and dull. We want to walk in peace and freedom, but we worry and we fear. We want to be at peace and harmony with other believers, but there's these divisions and hurts and heartaches. We want to be actually righteous, but we still sin. I mean, I regularly wonder, what will it be like when sin is completely removed? I wonder how much has my entire experience of life been affected by the presence of sin, my sin and sin in the world. We don't know. We've never experienced it. We don't even know what we don't know. Remember those Claritin commercials on TV? I mean, the commercial starts out, you're looking through this kind of hazy lens, and then you take Claritin. And that layer is peeled back and you discover what you didn't realize you'd been missing all along. Well, it's the pre-Claritin experience that we're living in now. Now we see through a glass darkly. We just have no idea the profundity of the difference it will make to have the haze and the distraction of sin removed. It's gone. What will it be like to be really free like that? See, it's not just that you're going to be victorious over sin all the time in heaven. We won't even have to deal with sin. It won't even be present. Just imagine with me for a moment. Just imagine a young tree out on a windswept North Dakota hillside. Its whole life, it's had to do battle every day. The wind is always blowing, just incessantly blowing. That tree spends its entire life having to fight this ever-present reality, never, not even a moment of rest. Just imagine what it would be like for that tree if all of a sudden the wind is taken away. No more wind ever again, just air and sunshine and stillness. What a different experience. Friends, there will be for us a whole new experience that we've never had before. Our entire world will be changed. No longer any effect of sin on my conscience or on my consciousness. It's just gone. No more division or disruption in our relating to one another as God's people and none of the outward effects of sin and the curse. Look at chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And look at chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. Instead, look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street 
of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I don't know for sure, but it sure seems like that is saying that the eternal life that God gives his people is perpetually sustained and he will eternally cure every former sin and hurt. And just, just think about this. For the very first time, God's perfect, now renewed creation will be met by your full and unclouded capacity to experience life in that creation. And I'm guessing, I'm, I'm just guessing that you and I are going to be left utterly speechless at the experience. Friends, we just don't have any idea what this will be like, but clearly God wants us looking forward to it, to that day when our shame and our sinning will be a thing of the past. All of the outward effects of sin will be a thing of the past, and we will stand in a new freedom of perfect righteousness. Oh, how we should look forward to that. And God wants his people to look forward to it. Third, number three, community. Perfect community. God wants us to be eagerly looking forward to this. Look with me at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So John is carried away in the spirit. He's brought to this high lookout point, this great high mountain. And he is shown this amazing city coming down out of heaven. Remember that passage I quoted just a few minutes ago from Isaiah chapter 65. Let me just read one verse again. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. The reality of, that, uh, of a glad community of God's people is represented here in Revelation 21 and 22 by this city, this, this new Jerusalem. And all of that elaborate description of this city. I mean, my goodness, you could get distracted by all of those measurements and that description of the foundation and the gates and all of those spectacular jewels of every color of the rainbow. All that is there on purpose to communicate the splendor and the majesty of this city. But the main thing that the city represents is the community of God's people. That's the thing. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's the people. And just the buildings of that city, as elaborate as they might be, they don't have any purpose apart from the inhabitants who, who live there. Listen, every image, every image of heaven that we see in the book of Revelation is a picture of a great gathering of people. God's redeemed community. We see that powerfully in chapter 5. We see it powerfully in chapter 7, a vast multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation, and they're living together in perfect community. They're not just getting along with each other. They're dwelling together in this great city and deep, happy, and rich community. There's lots of joy, lots of happiness to a degree that we've just never experienced you know, the great theologian Augustine once said, all of us 
who will enjoy God in heaven will also at the same time be greatly enjoying each other. Isn't that good? All of us who will enjoy God in heaven will also at the same time be greatly enjoying each other. Friends, this city here in Revelation 21, in all of its glory, it's designed to show us the breathtaking beauty and magnitude of the community of God's redeemed people. You know, there's so many connections in these chapters back to Genesis 1 and 2, the original paradise. There's that tree of life. There's that river kind of flowing through the middle of things. They're so clearly reminiscent of Eden, but there's one striking difference. It's no longer a garden occupied by just two people. It's now a great city occupied by a great multitude, all, all of God's people, from every beautiful color and culture and language, one people, living together in joy and peace and prosperity and freedom, which is very unlike our experience in the world now. Oh, how we should look forward to this perfect human community, but even greater than that, even better than the experience of perfect human community, fourth, number four, our dwelling with God. We will be with God. There's no question that we should, as his people, be eagerly looking forward to this. God wants us to be looking forward to it, this dwelling with him. You know, the Bible often uses the illustration of marriage to describe the relationship between God and his people. But think about this. Here is God stuck in the longest bad marriage in history. And yet, it all ends with this marvelous new wedding with his bride, beautiful before him. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And look again at verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This incredible reality of God dwelling with us as a husband among his people I mean, this is the central and the primary reality of the new heaven and the new earth, to be with God, to see him, to recognize him, to know him, to love him and live with him. This is what we were made for, to be in close relationship with God. I mean, you might, you might think you want a hundred different things, but being with God is what you were made for. This is, this is heaven's chief and irresistible attraction. And God's presence will affect everything else. Look at verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And look at verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives, its li give it, gives it light. Everywhere, everything will be charged with God's presence. Nothing you see or experience in heaven will ever be dull or drab or ordinary. All will be given a quality of glory to it. But it's in the opening verse of chapter 22 where this really comes out. Look there. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So God will be a fountain of living water to his people, and we will be right there drawing on that source of life. Then verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. But now look at verse 4. They will see his face. Can we just linger there a moment? I don't want to get sentimental here. I don't believe that's John's purpose. No, there is some great reality that he's communicating by that phrase. We shall see his face. This is not just some casual sighting. Like, you know, I saw so-and-so at the grocery store the other day. And we shall see his face without any distraction, no longer through a glass darkly. We'll recognize him whom we've never seen before. We'll know him. There will be this indescribable joy in our hearts just being with him. You know, Jesus said it when he was here on earth. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Perfect communion, God dwelling with us, us knowing him, being with him, him being ours, us being his. It is the greatest longing of the human heart, and we will have it. Oh, how we should look forward to that. Now, number five, fifth, foreverness. So fulfillment, freedom, perfect community, dwelling with God, all of those we should look forward to, and this, foreverness. We should be eagerly looking forward to. God wants us to be eagerly looking forward to foreverness. In other words, None of these things that we've been talking about will go away, ever. Maybe you've heard of Edgar Allan Poe's great poem called The Raven. Remember this? Once upon a midnight, dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary. It's this kind of dark and strange poem about a man who is lamenting the loss of, of a relationship with this woman, Lenore, and while he's sitting in his room pondering, this raven flies in through his window and perches up on the top of his bookcase and just keeps repeating one word, remember? Nevermore. Nevermore. Which is Edgar Allan Poe's commenting with chilling brevity on the reality that every one of us lives with in this life. The passing of things, the irreversibility of time. When things are gone, they're gone irretrievably. When your youth is gone, it's gone. When your loved ones died, they're, they're gone. And the sadness that we experience in this life as a result of that is, it's a powerful thing. I have a daughter who was a very fine athlete in high school. She wasn't the most naturally gifted but she gave herself with all of her heart to her sport, and she became very good. Uh, in her freshman year, she went out for cross country. She did okay, but later that year, in the spring during the track season, something very special happened. She had a breakout race. She won, as a freshman, the two-mile race at a major meet, and both her coach and her dad um, wondered if maybe she had something special. Well, later that spring, she qualified for state, and as a freshman, she was so thrilled, and I, as her dad, was so proud of her. She didn't have the best race at state, but she was there as a freshman, 
And then in the off-season, she worked really hard, and as she entered into her sophomore season, she began winning all kinds of races. She again qualified for state in both the mile and the two miles. She ran well. In her junior year, she qualified again for both the mile and the two miles. She ran really well. And all of this time, she's just she's loving the whole experience, the team, the coaches, the, the sport, the magic of the race itself. She'd, she'd made friends with runners all over the state of Wisconsin. She just entered fully into the experience. Now, I'm sharing with this, this with you for, for a reason. I'm not just trying to relive old days. <laughs> well, maybe a little I am. Here's my point. After the state meet her senior year, she'd had a great senior season. She qualified again for the mile, the two miles. She ran her races. And after her last race, her very last race of her high school career, we're in this big field house. We're needing to get going to get her back to school for her graduation. But Abby wants to go over to her coaches to somehow try to communicate her gratitude to them for all they've done for her. And she lingered there. She, she didn't want to leave. She knew what that moment represented. And as we finally turned and walked back across that field house, my daughter just began to weep. She wept like I'd never seen her weep before. Something was passing and would soon be irretrievably gone. Something very precious to her, deeply part of her life, was gone and it wasn't coming back. And there was nothing she could do to keep it. And it broke her 17-year-old heart. I tried to comfort her. I tried as her dad, knowing there was nothing I could do. She was experiencing the heartbreaking reality of the passage of time, the nevermore of life. And the truth is, she'll experience that over and over and over again, as we all will. But now look at how this passage ends. Chapter 22, verse 5. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign, you see those words in your Bible, forever and ever. They, God's people, all who are in Christ, will, will live like this, in this great fulfillment, in this incredible freedom, in this perfect community, in this completely satisfying dwelling with God, forever and ever. You ever think about that phrase? Forever and ever? I mean, doesn't forever get it all done by itself? <laughs> but the Bible likes to speak this way, and so do we. It's in our hearts. It shows up powerfully in our consciousness. We try to get our little minds around this, and we can't, but it's in our hearts. He has set eternity in your heart. And no matter what someone might try to do to squelch it, it's, it's there. But for the awakened soul, for the believer in Jesus, it's a longing for something that we can and we should look forward to, and God wants us to. That's why he had John write this down, so we could see it and look forward to it. You know, sometimes here on earth, in the midst of a happy time, we can find ourselves saying or thinking, you know, I, I wish this would never end. But it always does. But when we get home, when we get to heaven, we will say this. This is it. I want this to last forever, and it will. Well, let me try to wrap this up with one more focusing question. 
Who is this revelation for? Who does God have in his mind when he tells John to write this down? Here's the answer. All of the redeemed people of God. All those who, by trusting in Jesus, have been ransomed. In other words, the church. This is for us, for Christians. All those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Did you see those words there at the end of chapter 21? Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this is for you if your name is written in that book. This is for us, the people of God, the bride of Christ, the, the redeemed of the Lord, all whose names are written in a book. I read not too long ago William Faulkner's great novel, uh, The Sound and the Fury. It's one of those books that's been sitting on my shelf for a long time, and I finally pulled it off and read it. It's the story of the economic and moral and spiritual decline of the South in the early 20th century. It's a very challenging novel to read from a literary standpoint, but if you, if you hang in there, you'll soon meet Dilsey. Dilsey, the elderly African-American woman who is a house servant to the degenerate and unraveling Compton family. And she, Dilsey, is really the only point of moral sanity and spiritual life in the whole novel. At one point, the Compton family is planning, strangely, to change the name of one of the children because of some potential embarrassment. And into that discussion, Dilsey speaks, and here's what she says. Changing his name ain't going to help him. Folks don't have no luck changing names. My name been Dilsey since before I could remember it. It'll be Dilsey when people's long forgot me. How will it be Dilsey when she's long forgot, Caddy asked. It'll be in the book, honey, Dilsey said. Read out. Can you read it, Caddy said. Won't have to, said Dilsey. They'll read it for me. All I got to do is say, I's here. Listen, if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, someday they'll read it. God will read your name. And all of your longings, all you've looked forward to will be brought wonderfully into being. You will hear God say, welcome home. And you will say with a heart full of wonder and amazement, I's here. I's here. Let's pray together. Father, we want to say thank you for this book you've given to us. Thank you that you've put this book of Revelation in it. And thank you for this vision that you put in that book. Father, we are so helped by seeing and hearing what it will be like. And so, God, I pray that you would keep every one of us from just being a hearer of the word this morning. I pray that you would take this word and put it in us where it's needed. You know, so that it might shape our thinking and shape our believing and shape our living. God, help us to be faithful followers of Christ all the way through to the end. And we are so eagerly looking forward to what you've told us is coming. And so, God, I pray, put faith 
and hope in our hearts for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.